Isis Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of The Last Hero, written by Terry Pratchett, read by Stephen Briggs. The place where the story happened was a world on the back of four elephants perched on the shell of a giant turtle. That's the advantage of space. It's big enough to hold practically anything, and so, eventually, it does. People think that it is strange to have a turtle 10,000 miles long and an elephant more than 2,000 miles tall, which just shows that the human brain is ill-adapted for thinking and was probably originally designed for cooling the blood. It believes mere size is amazing. There's nothing amazing about size. Turtles are amazing, and elephants are quite astonishing. But the fact that there's a big turtle is far less amazing than the fact that there is a turtle anywhere. The reason for the story was a mix of many things. There was humanity's desire to do forbidden deeds merely because they were forbidden. There was its desire to find new horizons and kill the people who lived beyond them. There were the mysterious scrolls. There was the cucumber. But mostly there was the knowledge that one day, quite soon, it would be all over. Ah, well, life goes on, people say when someone dies. But from the point of view of the person who has just died, it doesn't. It's the universe that goes on. Just as the deceased was getting the hang of everything, it's all whisked away by illness or accident, or, in one case, a cucumber. Why this has to be is one of the imponderables of life, in the face of which people either start to pray or become really, really angry. The beginning of the story happened tens of thousands of years ago, on a wild and stormy night, when a speck of flame came down the mountain at the centre of the world. It moved in dodges and jerks, as if the unseen person carrying it was sliding and falling from rock to rock. At one point, the line became a streak of sparks, ending in a snowdrift at the bottom of a crevasse. But a hand, thrust up through the snow, held the smoking embers of the torch, and the wind, driven by the anger of the gods, and with a sense of humour of its own, whipped the flame back into life. And after that, it never died. The end of the story began high above the world, but got lower and lower as it circled down towards the ancient and modern city of Ankh-Morpork, where it was said anything could be bought and sold, and if they didn't have what you wanted, they could steal it for you. Some of them could even dream it. The creature, now seeking out a particular building below, was a trained, pointless albatross, and by the standards of the world was not particularly unusual, compared to, say, the Republican bees, who committed rather than swarmed, and tended to stay in the hive a lot, voting for more honey. It was, though, pointless. It spent its entire life in a series of lazy journeys between the rim and the hub, and where was the point in that? This one was more or less tame. Its beady, mad eye spotted where, for reasons entirely beyond its comprehension, anchovies could be found. And someone would remove this uncomfortable cylinder from its leg. It seemed a pretty good deal to the albatross, and from this it can be deduced 
that these albatrosses are, if not completely pointless, at least rather dumb. Not at all like humans, therefore. Flight has been said to be one of the great dreams of mankind. In fact, it merely harks back to man's ancestors, whose greatest dream was of falling off the branch. In any case, other great dreams of mankind have included the one about being chased by huge boots with teeth, and no one says that one has to make sense. Three busy hours later, Lord Vetinari, the patrician of Ankh-Morpork, was standing in the main hall of Unseen University, and he was impressed. The wizards, once they understood the urgency of a problem, and then had lunch, and argued about the pudding, could actually work quite fast. Their method of finding a solution, as far as the patrician could see, was by creative hubbub. If the question was, what is the best spell for turning a book of poetry into a frog, then the one thing they would not do was look in any book with a title like Major Amphibian Spells in a Literary Environment, a Comparison. That would somehow be cheating. They would argue about it instead, standing around a blackboard, seizing the chalk from one another and rubbing out bits of what the current chalk holder was writing before he'd finished the other end of the sentence. Somehow, though, it all seemed to work. Now something stood in the centre of the hall. It looked, to the arts-educated patrician, like a big magnifying glass surrounded by rubbish. "'Technically, my lord, an omniscope can see anywhere,' said Arch-Chancellor Ridcully, who was head of all known wizardry. That is, all those wizards who knew Arch-Chancellor Ridcully and were prepared to be led. "'Anywhere, remarkable,' said the patrician. "'Anywhere and any time,' Ridcully went on, apparently not impressed himself. "'How extremely useful!' "'Yes, everyone says that,' said Ridcully, kicking the floor morosely. "'The trouble is, because the blasted thing can see everywhere, "'it's practically impossible to get it to see anywhere, "'at least anywhere worth seeing, "'and you'd be amazed at how many places there are in the universe, "'and times, too.' Twenty past one, for example,' said the patrician. "'Among others, indeed. "'Would you care to have a look, my lord?' Lord Vetinari advanced cautiously "'and peered into the big round glass. He frowned. "'All I can see is what's on the other side of it,' he said. "'Ah, that speak because it's uh, set to here and now, sir,' said a young wizard who was still adjusting the device. "'Oh, I see,' said the patrician. "'We have these at the palace, in fact. We call them windows.' "'Well, if I do this,' said the wizard, and did something to the rim of the glass, it looks the other way. Lord Vetinari looked into his own face. And these we call mirrors, he said, as if explaining to a child. I, I think not, sir, said the wizard. It takes a moment to realise what you're seeing. It helps if you uh, hold up your hand. Lord Vetinari gave him a severe look, but essayed a little wave. Oh, how curious. What is your name, young man? Ponder Stibbon, sir, the new head of inadvisably applied magic, sir. You see, uh, sir, the, 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 the trick 
isn't to, to build an omniscope because, after all, that's just a development of the old-fashioned crystal ball. It's to get it to see what you want. It's like tuning a string, and if... Sorry, what applied magic? said the patrician. Inadvisably, sir, said Ponder smoothly, as if hoping that he could avoid the problem by driving straight through it. Anyway, I think we can get it to the right area, sir. The power drain is considerable. We may have to sacrifice another gerbil. The wizards began to gather around the device. Can you see into the future? said Lord Vetinari. Uh, in theory, yes, sir, said Ponder. But that would be highly, <coughs> well, um, inadvisable, you see, because initial studies would indicate that the fact of observation would collapse the waveform in phase space. Not a muscle moved on the patrician's face. Pardon me, I'm a little out of date on faculty staff, he said. Are you the one who has to take dried frog pills? No, no sir, that's the bursar, sir, said Ponder. He has to have them because he's insane, sir. Ah, said Lord Vetinari, and now he did have an expression. It was that of a man resolutely refraining from saying what was on his mind. "'What Mr. Stibbons means, my lord,' said the Arch-Chancellor, "'is that there are billions and billions of futures that uh, sort of exist, do you see? "'They're all the, uh, the, the possible shapes of the future, "'but apparently the first one you actually look at is the one that becomes the future. "'It might not be the one you'd like. "'Apparently it's all to do with the uncertainty principle.' "'And that is?' Uh, "'I'm not sure.' Mr. Stibbons is the one who knows about that sort of thing. An orangutan ambled past, carrying an extremely large number of books under each arm. Lord Vetinari looked at the hoses that snaked from the omniscope and out through the open door and across the lawn to, what was it, the high-energy magic building? He remembered the old days, when wizards had been gaunt and edgy and full of guile. They wouldn't have allowed an uncertainty principle to exist for any length of time. If you weren't certain, they'd say, what were you doing wrong? What you were uncertain of could kill you. The omniscope flickered and showed a snowfield with black mountains in the distance. The wizard called Ponder Stibbons appeared to be very pleased with this. I thought you said you could find him with this thing, said Vetinari to the Arch-Chancellor. Ponder Stibbons looked up. Uh, do we have something that he has owned, uh, some personal item he has left lying around, he said. We could put it in the morphic resonator, connect that up to the omniscope, and it'll home in on him like a shot. Whatever happened to the magic circles and dribbly candles, said Lord Vetinari. Oh, uh, therefore when we're not in a hurry, sir, said Ponder. Cohen the Barbarian is not known for leaving things lying around, I fear, said the patrician. "'Bodies, perhaps. "'All we know is that he is heading for Corrie Celesti. "'The mountain at the hub of the world, sir. Why?' "'I was hoping you would tell me, Mr. Stibbons. "'That is why I'm here.' "'The librarian ambled past again with another load of books. "'Another response of the wizards when faced with a new and unique situation "'was to look through their libraries to see if it had ever happened before.' This was, Lord Vetinari reflected, a good survival trait. It meant that, in times of danger, you spent the day sitting very quietly in a building with very thick walls. He looked again at the piece of paper in his hand. 
Why were people so stupid? One sentence caught his eye. He says the last hero ought to return what the first hero stole. And, of course, everyone knew what the first hero stole. The gods play games with the fate of men. Not complex ones, obviously, because gods lack patience. Cheating is part of the rules, and gods play hard. To lose all believers is, for a god, the end. But a believer who survives the game gains honour and extra belief. Who wins with the most believers lives. Believers can include other gods, of course. Gods believe in belief. There were always many games going on in Dun Manifestin, the abode of the gods on Corrie Celeste. It looked, from outside, like a crowded city. A few religions are definite about the size of heaven, but on the planet Earth, the Book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 16, gives it as a cube 12,000 furlongs on a side. This is somewhat smaller than five trillion cubic feet. Even allowing that the heavenly host and other essential services take up at least two-thirds of this space, this leaves about one million cubic feet of space for each human occupant, assuming that every creature that could be called human is allowed in, and that the human race eventually totals a thousand times the number of humans alive up until now. This is such a generous amount of space that it suggests that room has also been provided for some alien races or, a happy thought, that pets are allowed. As for Dun Manifestin, not all gods lived there, many of them being bound to a particular country, or, in the case of the smaller ones, even one tree. But it was a good address. It was where you hung your metaphysical equivalent of the shiny brass plate, like those small, discreet buildings in the smarter areas of major cities, which nevertheless appear to house 150 lawyers and accountants, presumably on some sort of shelving. The city's domestic appearance was because, while people are influenced by gods, so gods are influenced by people. Most gods were people-shaped. People didn't have much imagination on the whole. Even Offler the crocodile god was only crocodile-headed. Ask people to imagine an animal god, and they will, basically, come up with the idea of someone in a really bad mask. Men have been much better at inventing demons, which is why there are so many. Above the wheel of the world, the gods played on. They sometimes forgot what happened if you let a pawn get all the way up the board. It took a little longer for the rumour to spread around the city, but in twos and threes the leaders of the great guilds hurried into the university. Then the ambassadors picked up the news. Around the city the big semaphore towers faltered in their endless task of exporting market prices to the world, sent the signal to clear the line for high-priority emergency traffic, and then clacked the little packets of doom to chancelleries and castles across the continent. They were in code, of course. If you have news about the end of the world, you don't want everyone to know. Lord Vetinari stared along the table. If I may recap, then, ladies and gentlemen, he said as the hubbub died away, according to the authorities in Hong Hong, 
the capital of the Agatean Empire, the Emperor Genghis Cohen, formerly known to the world as Cohen the Barbarian, is well en route to the home of the gods with a device of considerable destructive power and the intention, apparently, of, in his words, returning what was stolen. And in short, they ask us to stop him. Why us? said Mr. Boggis, head of the Thieves' Guild. He's not our emperor. I understand the Agatean government believes us to be capable of anything, said Lord Vetinari. We have zip, zing, vim, and a go-getting can-do attitude. Can-do what? Lord Vetinari shrugged. In this case, save the world. But we'll have to save it for everyone, right? said Mr. Boggis. Even foreigners? Well, yes. You cannot just save the bits you like, said Lord Vetinari. But the thing about saving the world, gentlemen and ladies, is that it inevitably includes whatever you happen to be standing on. So let us move forward. Can magic help us, Arch-Chancellor? No, nothing magical can get within a hundred miles of the mountains, said the Arch-Chancellor. Why not? For the same reason you can't sail a boat into a hurricane. There's just too much magic. It overloads anything magical. A magic carpet would unravel in midair. Or uh, turn into broccoli, said the dean, or a small volume of poetry. Are you saying that we cannot get there in time? Uh, well, yes, exactly. Uh, of course, they're already near the base of the mountain. "'And uh, heroes,' said Mr. Betteridge of the Guild of Historians. "'And that means exactly,' said the patrician, sighing, "'they're good at doing what they want to do. "'But they are also, as I understand it, very old men—' "'Very old heroes,' the historian corrected him. "'That just means they've had a lot of experience in doing what they want to do.' "'Lord Vetinari sighed again.' He did not like to live in a world of heroes. You had civilization such as it was, and you had heroes. What exactly has Cohen the Barbarian done that is heroic? he said. I seek only to understand. Well, you know their heroic deeds, and they are... "'Fighting monsters, defeating tyrants, and stealing rare treasures, and rescuing maidens, that sort of thing,' said Mr. Betteridge vaguely. "'You know, uh, heroic things.' "'And who precisely defines the monstrousness of the monsters, and the tyranny of the tyrants?' said Lord Vetinari, his voice suddenly like a scalpel, not vicious like a sword, but probing its edge into vulnerable places. "'Mr. Betteridge.' "'shifted uneasily. "'Well, the hero, I suppose.' "'Ah, and the theft of these rare items? "'I think the word that interests me here is the term theft, "'an activity frowned on by most of the world's major religions, is it not? "'The feeling stealing over me is that all these terms are defined by the hero. "'You could say—' I am a hero, so when I kill you, that makes you, de facto, the kind of person suitable to be killed by a hero. You could say that a hero, in short, 
is someone who indulges every whim that, within the rule of law, would have him behind bars, or swiftly dancing what I believe is known as the hemp fandango. The words we might use are murder, pillage, theft, and rape. Have I understood the situation? Not rape, I believe, said Mr. Betteridge, finding a rock on which he could stand. Not in the case of Cohen the Barbarian. Ravishing, possibly. Is there a difference? It's more a matter of approach, I understand, said the historian. I don't believe there were ever any actual complaints. Uh, speaking as a lawyer, said Mr. Slant of the Guild of Lawyers, it is clear that the first ever recorded heroic deed to which the message refers was an act of theft from the rightful owners. The legends of many different cultures testify to this. Was it something you could actually steal? said Ridcully. Manifestly, yes, said the lawyer. Theft is essential to the legend. Fire was stolen from the gods. This is not currently the issue, said Lord Vetinari. The issue, gentlemen, is that Cohen the Barbarian is climbing the mountain on which the gods live, and we cannot stop him. And he intends to return fire to the gods. Fire, in this case, in the shape of, let me see, Ponder Stibbons looked up from his notebooks where he had been scribbling. A, a, a fifty-pound keg of agate and thunder clay, he said. I'm amazed their wizards let him have it. He was, indeed, I assume he still is, the emperor, said Lord Vetinari. So I would imagine that when the supreme ruler of your continent asks you for something, it is not the time for a prudent man to ask for a docket signed by Mr. Jenkins of requisitions. Thunderclay is terribly powerful stuff, said Ridcully, but it needs a special detonator. You have to smash a jar of acid inside the mixture. The acid soaks into it and then kablooey, I believe the term is. Unfortunately, the prudent man also saw fit to give one of these to Cohen, said Lord Vetinari. And if the resulting kablooey takes place atop the mountain, which is the hub of the world's magic field, it will, as I understand it, result in the field collapsing for, remind me, Mr. Stibbons, uh, about two years, he said. Really? Well, we can do without magic for a couple of years, can't we? said Mr. Slant, managing to suggest that this would be a jolly good thing too. Uh, with respect, said Ponder, without respect, we cannot. The seas will uh, run dry, the, the, the sun will burn out and crash, uh, the elephants and the turtle may cease to exist altogether. That'll happen in just two years? Oh, no, that'll happen within a few minutes, sir. You see, magic isn't just coloured lights and, and, and balls. Magic holds the world together. In the sudden silence, Lord Vetinari's voice sounded crisp and clear. "'Is there anyone who knows anything about Genghis Cohen?' he said. 
And is there anyone who can tell us why, before leaving the city, he and his men kidnapped a harmless minstrel from our embassy? Explosives, yes, very barbaric. But why a minstrel? Can anyone tell me? There was a bitter wind this close to Corrie Celeste. From here, the world mountain, which looked like a needle from afar, was a raw and ragged cascade of ascending peaks. The central spire was lost in a haze of snow crystals miles high. The sun sparkled on them. Several elderly men sat huddled around a fire. "'I hope he's right about the stare of light,' said Boy Willie. "'We're going to look real muffins if it isn't there.' "'He was right about the giant walrus,' said Truckle the Uncivil. "'When?' "'Remember when we was crossing the ice?' "'When he shouted, "'Look out, we're going to be attacked by a giant walrus.' "'Oh, yeah.' "'Willie looked back up at the spire. "'The air seemed thinner already, the colours deeper, "'making him feel that he could reach up and touch the sky. "'Anyone know if there's a lavatory at the top?' he said. "'Oh, there's got to be,' said Caleb the Ripper. "'Yeah, I'm sure I heard tell about it, the toilet of the gods.' "'What?' They turned to what appeared to be a pile of furs on wheels. When the eye knew what it was looking for, this became an ancient wheelchair mounted on skis and covered with rags of blanket and animal skins. A pair of beady animal eyes peered out suspiciously from the heap. There was a barrel strapped behind the wheelchair. "'It must be time for his gruel,' said Boy Willie, putting a soot-encrusted pot on the fire. "'What?' "'Just warming up your gruel, Amish. "'Bloody walrus again! "'Yes? What?' "'They were, all of them, old men. "'Their background conversation was a litany of complaints "'about feet, stomachs, and backs. "'They moved slowly, but they had a look about them. "'It was in their eyes. "'Their eyes said that wherever it was, they had been there. "'Whatever it was... They had done it, sometimes more than once. But they would never, ever buy the T-shirt. And they did know the meaning of the word fear. It was something that happened to other people. "'I wish old Vincent was here,' said Caleb the Ripper, poking the fire aimlessly. "'Well, he's gone and there's an end of it,' said Truckle the Uncivil shortly. "'We said we weren't going to bloody talk about it.' "'But what a way to go, gods! "'I hope that doesn't happen to me. "'Something like that, it shouldn't happen to anyone.' "'Yeah, well, right,' said Truckle. "'He were a good bloke. "'Took everything the world threw at him. "'All right. "'And then to choke on... "'We all know, now bloody well shut up!' "'Dinner's done,' said Caleb, "'pulling a smoking slab of grease out of the embers. "'Nice, we're all a steak, anyone?' What about Mr. Pretty? They turned to an evidently human figure that had been propped against a boulder. It was indistinct because of the ropes, but it was clearly dressed in brightly coloured clothes. This wasn't the place for brightly coloured clothes. This was a land for fur and leather. Boy Willie walked over to the colourful thing. We'll take the gag off, he said, if you promise not to scream. Frantic eyes darted this way and that, and then the gagged head nodded. All right, then, 
Eat your nice walrus uh, uh, lump, said Boy Willie, pulling at the cloth. How dare you drag me all, the minstrel began. Now look, said Boy Willie. None of us like having to wallop you alongside the ear when you go on like this, do we? Be reasonable. Reasonable? When you kidnap... Boy Willie snapped the gag back into place. Didn't streak of nothing, he muttered at the angry eyes. You ain't even got a harp. What kind of bard doesn't even have a harp? Just this sort of little wooden pot thing. Damn silly idea. It's called a lute, said Caleb through a mouthful of walrus. What? It's called a lute, Hamish. Aye, I used to lute. Nah, it's for singing posh songs for ladies, said Caleb. About flowers and that. Romance. The horde knew the word, although the activity had been outside the scope of their busy lives. Amazing what songs do for the ladies, said Caleb. Well, when I was a lad, said Truckle, if you wanted to get a girl's interest, you had to cut off your worst enemy's wasp name and present it to her. What? I said, you had to cut off your worst enemy's wasp name and present it to her. Hey, romance is a wonderful thing, said Mad Hamish. What did you do if you didn't have a worst enemy, said Boy Willie. You try and cut off anyone's wasp name, said Truckle, and you've soon got a worst enemy. Flowers is more usual these days, said Caleb reflectively. Truckle eyed the struggling lutist. Can't think what the boss was thinking of dragging this thing along, he said. Where is he anyway? Lord Vetinari, despite his education, had a mind like an engineer. If you wished to open something, you found the appropriate spot and applied the minimum amount of force necessary to achieve your end. Possibly the spot was between a couple of ribs and the force was applied via a dagger, or between two warring countries and applied via an army, but the important thing was to find that one weak spot which would be the key to everything. And so you are now the unpaid professor of cruel and unusual geography, he said to the figure who had been brought before him. The wizard known as Rincewind nodded slowly, just in case an admission was going to get him into trouble. Uh, yes. Have you been to the hub? Uh, yes. Can you describe the terrain? Uh, what did the scenery look like? Lord Vetinari added helpfully. Uh, blurred, sir. I was being chased by some people. Indeed. And why was this? Rincewind looked shocked. Oh, I never stop to find out why people are chasing me, sir. I never look behind, either. That'd be rather silly, sir. Lord Vetinari pinched the bridge of his nose. Just tell me what you know about Cohen, please, he said wearily. Him? Well, just a hero who never died, sir. A leathery old man. Not very bright, really. But he's got so much cunning and guile you'd never know it. Are you a friend of his? Well, we've met a couple of times and he didn't kill me, said Rincewind. That probably counts as a yes. And what about the old men who are with him? Oh, they're not old men. Well, yes, they are old men, but, well, they're his silver horde, sir. Those are the silver horde? All of it? Yes, sir, said Rincewind. But I thought... 
the Silver Horde conquered the entire Agatian Empire. Yes, sir, that was them. Rincewind shook his head. I know it's hard to believe, sir, but you haven't seen them fight. They're experienced, and the thing is, the big thing about Cohen is, he's contagious. You mean, he's a plague carrier? It's like a mental illness, sir, or magic. He's as crazy as a stoat, but once they've been around him for a while, people start seeing the world the way he does, all big and simple, and they want to be part of it. Lord Vetinari looked at his fingernails. But I understood that those men had settled down and were immensely rich and powerful, he said. That's what heroes want, isn't it? To crush the thrones of the world beneath their sandaled feet, as the poet puts it. Yes, sir. So, what's this? One last throw of the dice? Why? I can't understand it, sir. I mean, they had it all. Clearly, said the patrician, but everything wasn't enough, was it? There was an argument in the ante-room beyond the patrician's oblong office. Every few minutes a clerk slipped in through a side door and laid another pile of papers on the desk. Lord Vetinari stared at them. Possibly, he felt, the thing to do would be to wait until the pile of international advice and demands grew as tall as Corrie Celeste and simply climbed to the top of it. Zip! Zing and can do, he thought. So, as a man full of get up and go must do, Lord Vetinari got up and went. He unlocked a secret door in the panelling and a moment later was gliding silently through the hidden corridors of his palace. The dungeons of the palace held a number of felons imprisoned at his lordship's pleasure, and since Lord Vetinari was seldom very pleased, they were generally in for the long haul. His destination now, though, was the strangest prisoner of all who lived in the attic. Leonard of Querm had never committed a crime. He regarded his fellow men with benign interest. He was an artist, and he was also the cleverest man alive, if you used the word clever in a specialised and technical sense. But Lord Vetinari felt that the world was not yet ready for a man who designed unthinkable weapons of war as a happy hobby. The man was, in his heart and soul, and in everything he did, an artist. Currently, Leonard was painting a picture of a lady from a series of sketches he had pinned up by his easel. Ah, my lord, he said, glancing up, and what is the problem? Is there a problem, said Lord Vetinari? There generally is, my lord, when you come to see me. Very well said Lord Vetinari. I wish to get several people to the centre of the world as soon as possible. Ah, yes, said Leonard. There is much treacherous terrain between here and there. Do you think I have the smile right? I've never been very good at smiles. I said, do you wish them to arrive alive? What? Oh, yes, of course. And fast. Leonard painted on in silence. Lord Vetinari knew better than to interrupt. "'And do you wish them to return?' said the artist after a while. "'You know, perhaps I should show the teeth. I believe I understand teeth.' "'Returning them would be a pleasant bonus, yes. This is a vital journey.' "'If 
if it is not successful, the world will end. Ah, quite vital, then. Leonard laid down his brush and stood back, looking critically at his picture. I shall require the use of several sailing ships and a large barge, he said after a while, and I will make a list of other materials for you. A sea voyage? To begin with, my lord. Are you sure you don't want further time to think? said Lord Vetinari. Oh, uh, to sort out the fine detail, yes, but I believe I already have the essential idea. Vetinari looked up at the ceiling of the workroom and the armada of paper shapes and bat-winged devices and other aerial extravaganzas that hung there turning gently in the breeze. This doesn't involve some kind of flying machine, does it? he said suspiciously. Um, why do you ask? Because the destination is a very high place, Leonard, and your flying machines have an inevitable downwards component. Uh, yes, my lord, but I believe that sufficient down eventually becomes up, my lord. Ah, is this philosophy? Practical philosophy, my lord. Nevertheless, I find myself amazed, Leonard, that you appear to have come up with a solution just as soon as I presented the problem. Leonard of Querm cleaned his brush. I always say, my lord, that a problem correctly posed contains its own solution, but it is true to say that I have given some thought to issues of this nature. I do, as you know, experiment with devices— which, of course, obedient to your views on this matter, I subsequently dismantle, because there are indeed evil men in the world who might stumble upon them and pervert their use. You were kind enough to give me a room with unlimited views of the sky, and I am um, notice things. Oh, I shall require several dozen swamp dragons, too. Um, no, that should be um, more than a hundred, I think. Ah. "'You intend to build a ship that can be drawn into the sky by dragons?' said Lord Vetinari, mildly relieved. "'I recall an old story about a ship that was pulled by swans, and flew all the way to—' um, "'Swans, I fear, would not work. But your surmise is broadly correct, my lord. Well done. Uh, two hundred dragons, I suggest, to be on the safe side. That, at least, is not a difficulty. They are becoming rather a pest.' And the help of, um, ooh, sixty apprentices and journeymen from the Guild of Cunning Artificers? Perhaps there should be a hundred. They will need to work around the clock. Apprentices? But I can see to it that the finest craftsman— Leonard held up a hand. Not craftsman, my lord, he said. I have no use for people who have learned the limits of the possible— the horde found Cohen sitting on an ancient burial mound a little way from the camp. There were a lot of them in this area. The members of the horde had seen them before, sometimes, on their various travels across the world. Here and there an ancient stone would poke through the snow, carved in a language none of them recognised. They were very old. None of the horde had ever considered cutting into a mound to see what treasures might lie within. Partly this was because they had a word for people who used shovels, and that word was slave. But mainly it was because, despite their calling, they had a keen moral code, even if it wasn't the sort adopted by nearly everyone else, 
and this code led them to have a word for anyone who disturbed a burial mound. That word was die. The Horde, each member a veteran of a thousand hopeless charges, nevertheless advanced cautiously towards Cohen, who was sitting cross-legged in the snow. His sword was thrust deep into a drift. He had a distant, worrying expression. "'Coming to have some dinner, old friend,' said Caleb. "'It's walrus,' said Boy Willie. "'Again,' Cohen grunted. "'I haven't finished,' he said indistinctly. "'Finished what, old friend?' "'Remembering,' said Cohen. "'Remembering who?' "'The hero who was buried here, all right.' "'Who was he?' "'Dunno.' "'What were his people?' Search me, said Cohen. Did he do any mighty deeds? Couldn't fay. Then why? Someone's got to remember the poor bugger. You don't know anything about him. I can still remember him. The rest of the horde exchanged glances. This was going to be a difficult adventure. It was a good job it was going to be the last. You ought to come and have a word with that bard we captured, said Caleb. He's getting on my nerves. He don't seem to understand what he's about. He's just got to write a fogger afterwards, said Cohen flatly and damply. A thought appeared to strike him. He started to pat various parts of his clothing, which, given the amount of clothing, didn't take long. Yeah, well, this isn't your basic heroic saga kind of bard, you see, said Caleb, as his leader continued the search. I told you he wasn't the right sort when we grabbed him. He's more the kind of bard you want if you need some ditty being sung to a girl. We're talking flowers and spring here, boss. Ah, got em, said Cohen. From a bag on his belt he produced a set of dentures, carved from the diamond teeth of trolls. He inserted them into his mouth and gnashed them a few times. That's better. What were you saying? He's not a proper bard, boss, Cohen shrugged. He'll just have to learn fast then. He's got to be better than the ones back in the Empire. They don't have a clue about poems longer than seventeen syllables. At least this one's from Ank Morpork. He must have heard about sagas. I said we should have stopped off at Whale Bay, said Truckle. Icy wastes, freezing nights, good saga country. Yeah, if you like blabber. Cohen drew his sword from the snowdrift. I reckon I'd better go and take the lad's mind off of flowers then. It appears that things revolve around a disc, said Leonard. This is certainly the case with the sun and the moon, and also, if you recall, the Maria Pesto. Well, the ship, they said, went right under the disc, said Arch-Chancellor Ridcully. Quite. Known to be blown over the rim near the Bay of Manta during the dreadful storm, and seen by fishermen rising above the rim near Tin Ling some days later, where it crashed down upon a reef. There was only one survivor whose dying words were rather strange. I remember, said Ridcully. He said, my God, it's full of elephants. It is my view that with sufficient thrust and a lateral component, a craft sent off the edge of the world would be swung underneath by the massive attraction and rise on the far side, said Leonard. "'probably to a sufficient height to allow it to glide down to anywhere on the surface.' "'The wizards stared at the blackboard. "'Then 
As one wizard, they turned to Ponder Stibbons, who was scribbling in his notebook. What was that about, Ponder? Ponder stared at his notes. Then he stared at Leonard. Then he stared at Ridcully. Uh, uh, yes, possibly. Um, if you fall over the edge fast enough, the, 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 the world uh, pulls you back and you go on falling, but it's all round the world. You're saying that by falling off the world, we... And by we, I hasten to point out, I don't actually include myself, can end up in the sky, said the dean. Um, yes, after all, the sun does the same thing every day. The dean looked enraptured. Amazing, he said. Then you could get an army into the heart of enemy territory. No fortress would be safe. You could rain fire down onto... He caught the look in Leonard's eye. On to bad people he finished lamely. That would not happen, said Leonard severely, ever. Could the thing you are planning land on Corrie Celeste? said Lord Vetinari. Oh, certainly there should be suitable snowfields up there, said Leonard. If there are not, I feel sure I can devise some appropriate landing method. Happily, as you have pointed out, things in the air have a tendency to come down. Ridcully was about to make an appropriate comment, but stopped himself. He knew Leonard's reputation. This was a man who could invent seven new things before breakfast, including two new ways with toast. This man had invented the ball-bearing, such an obvious device that no one had thought of it. That was the very centre of his genius. He invented things that anyone could have thought of. And men who can invent things that anyone could have thought of are very rare men. This man was so absent-mindedly clever that he could paint pictures that didn't just follow you round the room, but went home with you and did the washing up. Some people are confident because they are fools. Leonard had the look of someone who was confident because so far he'd never found a reason not to be. He would step off a high building in the happy state of mind of someone who intended to deal with the problem of the ground when it presented itself. And might. "'What do you need from us?' said Ridcully. "'Well, the, um... Thing cannot operate by magic. Magic will be unreliable near the hub, I understand. But can you supply me with wind? You have certainly chosen the right people, said Lord Vetinari. And it seemed to the wizards that there was just too long a pause before he went on. They are highly skilled in weather manipulation. A severe gale would be helpful at the launch, Leonard continued. I think I can say without fear of contradiction that our wizards can supply wind in practically unlimited amounts, said the patrician. Is that not so, Arch-Chancellor? I am forced to agree, my lord. Then, if we can rely on a stiff following breeze, I'm sure— Just a moment, just a moment, said the dean, who rather felt the wind comment had been directed at him. What do we know of this man? "'He makes devices and paints pictures, does he? "'Well, I'm sure this is all very nice, "'but we all know about artists, don't we? "'Flibbertigibbets to a man. "'And what about bloody stupid Johnson? "'Remember some of the things he built?' "'Many of the things built by the architect and freelance designer "'Bergholt Stutley, bloody stupid, Johnson, "'were recorded in Ankh-Morpork, "'often on the line where it says, "'Cause of Death.' He was, people agreed, a genius, at least if you defined the word broadly. 
Certainly, no one else in the world could make an explosive mixture out of common sand and water. A good designer, he always said, should be capable of anything. And indeed he was. I'm sure Mr. Darkworm draws lovely pictures, the dean went on, but I, for one, would need a little more evidence of his amazing genius before we entrust the world to his, um, device. Show me one thing he can do that anyone couldn't do if they had the time. I have never considered myself a genius, said Leonard, looking down bashfully and doodling on the paper in front of him. Well, if I was a genius, I think I'd know it, the dean began and stopped. Absent-mindedly, while barely paying attention to what he was doing, Leonard had drawn a perfect circle. Lord Vetinari found it best to set up a committee system. More of the ambassadors from other countries had arrived at the university, and more heads of the guilds were pouring in, and every single one of them wanted to be involved in a decision-making process without necessarily going through the intelligence-using process first. About seven committees, he considered, should be about right, and when, ten minutes later, the first subcommittee had miraculously budded off, he took aside a few chosen people into a small room, set up the miscellaneous committee, and locked the door. The flying ship will need a crew, I'm told, he said. It can carry three people. Leonard will have to go because, to be frank, he will be working on it even as it departs. And the other two? There should be an assassin, said Lord Downey of the Assassin's Guild. No, if Cohen and his friends were easy to assassinate, they would have been dead long ago, said Lord Vetinari. Perhaps a woman's touch, said Mrs. Palm. "'head of the Guild of Seamstresses. "'I know they're elderly gentlemen, but my members are... "'I think the problem here, Mrs. Palm, "'is that although the Horde are apparently very appreciative "'of the company of women, "'they don't listen to anything they say. "'Yes, Captain Carrot. "'Captain Carrot Iron Founderson of the City Watch "'was standing to attention, radiating keenness and a hint of soap. "'I volunteer to go, sir,' he said. "'Yes, I thought you probably would.' "'Is this a matter for the watch?' said the lawyer, Mr. Slant. "'Mr. Cohen is simply returning property to its original owner.' "'That is an insight which had not hitherto occurred to me,' said Lord Vetinari smoothly. "'However, the city watch would not be the men I think they are.' if they couldn't think of a reason to arrest anyone. Commander Vimes? A conspiracy to make an affray should do it, said the head of the watch, lighting a cigar. And Captain Carrot is a persuasive young man, said Lord Vetinari. Oh, with a big sword, grumbled Mr. Slant. Persuasion comes in many forms, said Lord Vetinari. No, I agree with Arch-Chancellor Ridcully. Sending Captain Carrot would be an excellent idea. What? Did I say something? said Ridcully. Do you think that sending Captain Carrot would be an excellent idea? What? Oh, yes, good lad, keen, got a sword. Then I agree with you, said Lord Vetinari, who knew how to work a committee. We must make haste, gentlemen. The flotilla needs to leave tomorrow. We need a third member of the crew. There was a knock at the door. Vetinari signalled to a college porter to open it. The wizard, known as Rincewind, lurched into the room, white-faced, and stopped in front of the table. 
I do not wish to volunteer for this mission, he said. I beg your pardon, said Lord Vetinari. I do not wish to volunteer, sir. No one was asking you. Rincewind wagged a weary finger. Oh, but they will, sir, I will. Someone will say, eh, that Rincewind fellow, he's the adventurous sort. He knows the horde. Cohen seems to like him. He knows all there is to know about cruel and unusual geography. He'd be just a job for something like this. He sighed. And then I'll run away and probably hide in a crate somewhere that'll be loaded onto the flying machine in any case. Will you? Probably, sir. Or there'll be a whole string of accidents that'll end up causing the same thing. Trust me, sir. I know how my life works. So I thought I'd better cut through the whole tedious business and come along and tell you I don't wish to volunteer. I think you've left out a logical step somewhere, said the patrician. No, sir. It's very simple. I'm volunteering. I just don't wish to. But after all, when did that have anything to do with anything? He's got a point, you know, said Ridcully. He seems to come back from all sorts of... You see? Rincewind gave Lord Vetinari a jaded smile. I've been living my life for a long time. I know how it works. There were always robbers near the hub. There were pickings to be had amongst the lost valleys and forbidden temples, and also amongst the less prepared adventurers. Too many people, when listing all the perils to be found in the search for lost treasure or ancient wisdom, had forgotten to put at the top of the list the man who arrived just before you. One such party was patrolling its favourite area when it espied first a well-equipped warhorse tethered to a frost-shriveled tree. Then it saw a fire burning in a small hollow out of the wind, with a small pot bubbling beside it. Finally, it saw the woman. She was attractive, or at least had been conventionally so perhaps thirty years ago. Now she looked like the teacher you wished you'd had in your first year at school, the one with the understanding approach to life's little accidents, such as a shoe full of wee. She had a blanket around her to keep out the cold. She was knitting. Stuck in the snow beside her was the largest sword the robbers had ever seen. Intelligent robbers would have started to count up the incongruities here. These, however, were the other kind, the kind for whom evolution was invented. The woman glanced up, nodded at them, and went on with her knitting. "'Well, now, what have we here?' said the leader. "'Are you?' "'Hold this, will you?' said the old woman, standing up. "'Over your thumbs, young men. "'It won't take a moment for me to wind a fresh ball. "'I was hoping someone would drop by.' "'She held out a skein of wool. "'The robber took it uncertainly, "'aware of the grins on the faces of his men, "'but he opened his arms with what he hoped "'was a suitably evil, little-does-she-suspect look on his face. "'That's right,' said the old woman, standing back. "'She kicked him viciously in the groin,' in an incredibly efficient, if unladylike way, reached down as he toppled, caught up the cauldron, flung it accurately at the face of the first henchman, and picked up her knitting before he fell. The two surviving robbers hadn't had time to move, but then one unfroze and leapt for the sword. He staggered back under its weight, but the blade was long and reassuring. Ha ha ha! he said, and grunted as he raised the sword. How the hell did you carry this old woman? It's not my sword, she said. It belonged to the man over there. The man risked a look sideways. 
A pair of feet in armoured sandals were just visible behind a rock. They were very big feet. But I've got a weapon, he thought. And then he thought. So did he. The old woman sighed and drew two knitting needles from the ball of wool. The light glinted on them, and the blanket slid away from her shoulders and fell onto the snow. Well, gentlemen, she said. Cohen pulled the gag off the minstrel's mouth. The man stared at him in terror. What's your name, son? said Cohen. You kidnapped me. I was walking along the street and... How much? said Cohen. What? How much to write me a saga? You stink. Yeah, it's the walrus, said Cohen evenly. Spit like garlic in that respect. Anyway, a saga, that's what I want. And what you want is a big bag of rubies, not unadjacent in size to the rubies what I have here. He upended a leather bag into the palm of his hand. The stones were so big the snow glowed red. The musicians stared at them. You got... What's that word, Truckle? said Cohen. Art, said Truckle. You got art and we got rubies. We give you rubies, you give us art, said Cohen. End of problem, right? Problem? The rubies were hypnotic. Well, mainly the problem you'll have if you tell me you can't write me a saga said Cohen, still in a pleasant tone of voice. Oh, but look, I, I, I'm sorry, but sagas are just primitive poems, aren't they? The wind, never ceasing here near the hub, had several seconds in which to produce its more forlorn yet threatening whistle. It'll be a long walk to civilization, all by yourself, said Truckle at length. Without your feet, said Boy Willie. Please? Nah, nah, lads, we don't want to do that to the boy, said Cohen. He's a bright lad, got a great future ahead of him. He took a pull of his home-rolled cigarette and added, Up until now. Nah, I can see he's thinking about it. A heroic saga, lad. It'll be the most famousest one ever. What about? Us. You? But you're all old. The minstrel stopped. Even after a life that had hitherto held no danger greater than a hurled meat bone at a banquet, he could recognise sudden death when he saw it. And he saw it now. Age hadn't weakened here, well, except in one or two places. Mostly it had hardened. But I wouldn't know how to compose a saga, he said feebly. We'll help, said Truckle. We know lots, said Boy Willie. Bit in most of them, said Cohen. The minstrel's thoughts ran like this. These men are rubies insane. They are rubies sure to kill me, rubies. They've dragged me rubies, all the rubies, rubies. They want to give me a big bag of rubies, rubies. I suppose I could extend my repertoire, he mumbled. A look at their faces made him readjust his vocabulary. All right, I'll do it, he said. A tiny bit of honesty, though, survived even the glow of the jewels. I'm not the world's greatest minstrel, you know. You will be, after you write this saga, said Cohen, untying his ropes. Well, I hope you like it. Cohen grinned again. It's not up to us to like it. We won't hear it, he said. What? But, but you just said you wanted me to write you a saga. Yeah, yeah, but it's going to be the saga of how we died. It was a small flotilla that set sail from Ankh-Morpork the next day. 
Things had happened quickly. It wasn't that the prospect of the end of the world was concentrating minds unduly, because that is a general and universal danger that people find hard to imagine. But the patrician was being rather sharp with people, and that is a specific and highly personal danger, and people had no problem relating to it at all. The barge, under whose huge tarpaulin something was already taking shape, wallowed between the boats. Lord Vetinari went aboard only once and looked gloomily at the vast piles of material that littered the deck. "'This is costing us a considerable amount of money,' he told Leonard, who had set up an easel. "'I just hope there will be something to show for it.' "'The continuation of the species, perhaps,' said Leonard, completing a complex drawing and handing it to an apprentice. "'Obviously that, yes.' "'We shall learn many new things,' said Leonard, "'that I am sure will be of immense benefit to posterity. "'For example, the survivor of the Maria Pesto "'reported that things floated around in the air "'as if they had become extremely light. "'So I have devised this.' "'He reached down and picked up what looked to Lord Vetinari "'like a perfectly normal kitchen utensil. "'It's a frying pan that sticks to anything,' he said proudly. I got the idea from observing a type of teasel, which— And will this be useful? said Lord Vetinari. Oh, indeed. We will need to eat meals, and cannot have hot fat floating around? These small details matter, my lord. I have also devised a pen which writes upside down. No. Could you not simply turn the paper up the other way? An extract from the Journal of Leonard of Quirm. It appears to me that the substance that surrounds our world is as navigable as the sea or the air, having instead of winds and currents the shaping of the ether by the presence of matter in greater or lesser amounts. The sun and moon and the minor planets, which I believe are made of elephant dung, daily circumnavigate the turtle by a process which I may describe as a fall which never ends or ring a path. All is a matter of thrust and direction and curves that may be described with absolute accuracy. In the world, the perfection in the heavens, the sublime geometry. The line of sledges moved across the snow. It's damn cold, said Caleb. Feeling your age, are you? said Boy Willie. You're as old as you feel, I always say. What? "'He says you're as old as you feel, Amish. "'What? Feeling what?' "'I don't think I've become old,' said Boy Willie. "'Not your actual old. "'Just more aware of where the next lavatory is.' "'The worst bit,' said Truckle, "'is when young people come and sing happy songs at you.' "'Why are they so happy?' said Caleb. "'Cause they're not you, I suppose.' Fine, sharp snow crystals, blown off the mountain tops, hissed across their vision. In deference to their profession, the horde mostly wore tiny leather loincloths and bits and pieces of fur and chainmail. In deference to their advancing years, and entirely without comment among themselves, these had been underpinned now with long woolly combinations and various strange elasticated things. They were dealing with time as they had dealt with nearly everything else in their lives as something you charged at and tried to kill. At the front of the party, Cohen was giving the minstrel some tips. 
First off, you've got to describe how you feel about the saga, he said. How singing it makes your blood race, and you can hardly contain yourself that... You've got to tell him what a great saga it's going to be, understand? Uh, yes, yeah, I think so. Uh, 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 and then I say who you are, said the minstrel, scribbling furiously. Nah! Then you say what the weather was like. Oh, uh, you mean like it was a bright day? Nah, 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 you've got to talk saga. So first off, you've got to put the sentences the wrong way round. Oh, you mean like bright was the day? Right, good. I knew you was clever. Clever you was, you mean, said the minstrel, before he could stop himself. There was a moment of heart-stopping uncertainty, and then Cohen grinned and slapped him on the back. It was like being hit with a shovel. That's the style. What else now? Oh, yeah. No one ever talks in sagas. They always spakes. Spakes? Like, up spake Wolf the Sea Rover, see? And, 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 and people are always the something, like me. I'm... Cohen the Barbarian, right? But it could be Cohen the Bold-Hearted or Cohen the Slayer of Many or any of that class of thing. Oh, why are you doing this? said the minstrel. I ought to put that in. You're, you're going to return fire to gods? Yeah, with interest. But why? Because we've seen a lot of old friends die, said Caleb. That's right, said Boy Willie. And we never saw no big women on flying horses come and take em into the halls of heroes. When old Vincent died, him being one of us, said Boy Willie, where was the bridge of frost to take him to the feast of the gods, eh? No, they got him. They let him get soft with comfy beds and someone to chew his food for him. They nearly got us all. Ha! Milky drinks, spat Chuckle. What? said Hamish, waking up. He asked why we want to return fire to the gods, Hamish. Eh? Someone's got to do it, cackled Hamish. Because it's a big world and we ain't seen it all, said Boy Willie. Because the boogers are immortal, said Caleb. Because of the way my back aches on chilly nights, said Truckle. The minstrel looked at Cohen, who was staring at the ground. Because, said Cohen, because... They've let us grow old. At which point the ambush was sprung. Snowdrifts erupted. Huge figures raced towards the horde. Swords were in skinny, spotted hands with a speed born of experience. Clubs were swung. Old everything! shouted Cohen. It was a voice of command. The fighters froze. Blades trembled an inch away from throat and torso. Cohen looked up into the cracked and craggy features of an enormous troll, its club raised to smash him. "'Don't I know you?' he said. End of CD 1